we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods located somewhere in the mysterious wilds of West Cork, on every episode we talk about stories of the strange, the mysterious and the unexplained in order to find out exactly why people do believe weird things. You find us at our first episode of the new year, so a happy 2021 to you wherever you are listening. It is a early January morning and the weather is frosty, which is great. I love frosty weather. I really wish we got proper snow occasionally, at least when you're outside in the countryside. If you live in a city, I know snow is not that much fun. But uh, yeah, pretty, pretty nice. And um, I I like a bright, cold winter's day. I'll take that over a grey, wet day anytime. I said good morning just there, but it is actually early afternoon because I'm about to crack open this episode's brew. And being as we're dealing with a story about Yorkshire, and I did once live in Yorkshire, and I remember a thing or two about the beers of that region. So we're going down with a bottle of Darkened Crude Oatmeal Stout by Bradford Brew Station, which I acquired from a colleague there at great expense. So brought all the way over from newly post-Brexit UK, this uh, delicious bottle of Bradford beer. The, the episode, no, oh, this episode is about a little place, not far from Bradford actually, called Cottingley. And this is the first of a two-part series of the movies of the Cottingley fairies. Uh, one of these weird things, one of these weird situations that used to happen in, in the 90s where you had these kind of dueling movies. Most people remember um, 1998 when we had Armageddon facing off against Deep Impact and I think the same year was when both the movie Ants and A Bug's Life came out. Not as widely remembered is that in 1997, for reasons that are beyond me, um, two different films came out both about this reasonably obscure sort of pseudo-psychological story, the, the Cottingley Fairies. Anyway, that's what this episode is going to be all about. A couple of things to talk about first, uh, just in terms of chit-chatting with some of our listeners and stuff like that. A friend of the show, Victoria Pearson, who is a tremendous scholar and has a, an amazing knowledge of particularly Ireland in the 1700s, but uh, many other things as well, and appeared on our second Hellfire Club episode, which you should absolutely check out. That's brilliant. Uh, Victoria got in touch about our recent Frankenstein episode, which you may remember we talked a little bit about Kenneth Branagh being uh, a bare-chested megalomaniac, and um, the opening of that film where he, for the first time in, I think, any Frankenstein adaptation, he keeps the the opening scenes with the with the Antarctic exploration. And Victoria had a an interesting take. She said, um, just listening to the Frankenstein episode, it occurred to me, did Branagh keep the Antarctic bit because he already had a Shackleton obsession circa 1994? And I always saw him as seeing himself as being like Shackleton. And I didn't know anything about this, so big thanks to Victoria for pointing this out. But he had a TV movie called Shackleton uh, from about, two, well, 2002, a little bit later. And she sent me some pictures of it. So that was a Channel 4 
documentary or movie about Shackleton with Kenneth Kenneth Branagh's craggy features prominently on the cover. And she just said that uh, he was kind of everywhere at that time promoting Shackleton material. And I do have a, I mean, I was young, but I do have a dim recollection of Antarctic exploration getting a bit of a boost um, in, in the 90s and kind of at the turn of the millennium as well. So that's a little bit of context to where Kenneth Branagh's head might have been at when he was making the Frankenstein film back in 1994. So thanks to Victoria for that. Also, other friend of the show, Dr. Edward Guimont, uh, who was on our episode about the Mokile Membe, and that's also an awesome episode, and you should absolutely check that out. Uh, he got in touch about our uh, recent UFO episode when I was talking about the Close Encounters of the Third Kind movie, in which a, a quote came into my head, and the quote was something like, um, space travel has once again made children of us all and I couldn't I couldn't quite place it at the time and Edward quite rightly pointed out that that is of course from Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles which I'm ashamed that I could not think of because it's it's an old favorite of mine and uh, absolutely worth a reread though it's been very many years and I should I should really come back to it so I have a few recommendations of things that I read or checked out or watched over the last few months that I think listeners of the podcast might enjoy. So firstly, the film Vast of Night, you might know this, came out last year. Um, it's a small, low-budget film about uh, 1950s flying saucers, which makes it sound a bit silly, makes it sound a bit goofy. It's it's absolutely not. It's a It's basically a small character piece about two people living in a small town in New Mexico I think in the 1950s and they're one of them works for a, a late night radio show and the other one works uh, is a young girl who works as a um, like a telephone operator uh, and it's just both of them start to, to discover that something strange is happening in the town it's it's very subtle it's very slow and it's it's kind of a little bit artsy but not pretentious it's one of those films that plays with the medium of film does interesting things you know, with the medium and and kind of calls attention to film itself and film technique in ways that you don't see a whole lot in bigger films. And it's really a very clever use of a small budget. You know, this is this is a small filmmaking done very very well. So that's the vast of night, and I think I watched that on Amazon. It, it made a bit of a splash at the time, but I don't have a hot take on it. Somebody asked uh, what I thought of it, and. Um, I, I've done some reading about this and the director seems to have deliberately not been interested in science fiction or the UFO phenomena, so I don't know that he's definitively trying to say anything about either of those. He, it's just a really, really well-made film and uh, worth a look, even if you are an enthusiast of those things. And you might see things into this film that I didn't. I just really enjoyed it. I also want to recommend a podcast called Strange Arrivals. Perhaps you've checked this one out yourself as well, and... I'm coming late. It's from, I think, one or two years ago, but it's a, a really good sort of documentary style deep dive into the Betty and Barney Hill case from 1961. And it uses that story to then kind of bounce into the larger world of the beginning of the UFO abduction movement um, over the following decades. Um, I learned things about that story that I didn't know, and that doesn't always happen with some of these very old cases that have been you know studied to death and written about to death it's quite rare that I come across somebody who's actually you know unearthing new details or putting a new spin on it and uh, this show I really enjoyed I don't always have the time for those sort of long form 
journalistic style podcast shows. I sometimes I do. I go in and out of periods when I enjoy that and, and, and ones where I don't. They're definitely you know, podcasting is a relatively new medium and I feel like sometimes we're still defining our own sort of subgenres, but there is definitely a subgenre of documentary style which is is imitative of sort of Netflix type documentary shows, I think, where each episode is like half an hour long and they, they always end with a you know, a little tag to get you to watch the next one. But this this is brilliant and it's called um, Strange Arrivals and, and loads of important and knowledgeable people from the world of ufology show up in that one. And like I said, really, really great to see, um, you know, a genuinely new and interesting take on a, a, an old case. So, oh, I also want to recommend, if you follow me online, you'll have seen this recently. There's a, some, oh, Saurian Cinema is what the, uh, is what the, it's a YouTube video. And I don't, I don't recommend YouTube videos very often, not, not because, well, I am a snob, I suppose, but I just, it's not really one of the mediums that I am hugely au fait with. But this is from Cold Crash Pictures, and it's called Saurian Cinema, Colonialism and the Lost World. So that should be enough to tip you off that this is right up my street. And basically what this fellow does is he takes every film version of Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World, and there's been about five or six of them altogether and um, he looks at what they have to say about the adventure genre the lost world genre and in particular colonialism through what it has to say about basically native peoples of you know non-european places so it's really interesting how they take a look at all the films and which ones keep the the elements from the novel that deal with uh, native south american peoples how many of the films just remove them altogether and have nothing to say about them and as some of them it just it just shows how our attitudes about this kind of storytelling has changed over time. And one of my favorite takeaways from this from this it's an hour long mini documentary if you want to look at it that way. One of my favorite takeaways from it was the idea that the the two thousand one BBC Lost World version, which I quite like, so it's not amazing. It's um it's the one with Bob Hoskins as Professor Challenger and um the uh, walking with dinosaurs special effects. It's pretty good. It's it's probably as good a Lost World as we're going to get anytime soon. Although it's twenty years old now. Um, oh, and 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 the I, I, what he says is that, you know, that film does just enough to subvert the original narrative and to bring some sort of sort of post-colonial, um, progressive take on things. And therefore, the Lost World genre can evolve if you want to use that word it is not necessarily a dead genre we can resuscitate these stories which i really i really love them but they are obviously founded on very colonial ideas that don't really serve us very much anymore and um, but that doesn't mean that we can't take these stories in new directions in future and, and he, he sees this film this version of of the story as at least a, a small little pointer a small light in the dark um, pointing in that particular direction so that's it for my recommendations and we're going to be talking about the Cottingley Fairies and in this episode we're going to focus on one of the two films that came out in 1997 this being like I said part one of a probably two-part series maybe more we'll see we're going to talk about the movie Fairy Tale: a true story from 1997 and in the second episode we're going to talk about the film 
photographing fairies. They have obviously similar titles, they're both about the same thing. It's incredibly interesting to watch them now and see what aspects they focus on, how they focus on different aspects of the story, what the story has to tell us about uh, the nature of belief, about, you know, Europe and England in the early 20th century, what the differences are to now, what the what the similarities are to now. So this is going to be spoilerific if you want to enjoy it thoroughly. Out of the two, this was not the one I was looking forward to and I wasn't expecting to enjoy it uh, because it, it is marketed like a, a kid's film and it, it looked to me like it was going to be a very Disney take on the story, like a very uh, sort of Love Conquers All, a an uncritical take on the story. I mean, the poster just says Believe in huge letters. And I thought, right, this is going to be a thing for little kids where the fairies are real and they're all bad CGI and the two little kids have to, you know, bond with the fairies in order to save, you know, their town from some evil developer, blah, 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 all that stuff. And to some degree, a lot of that is true. I mean, it is a kid's film, essentially. So in terms of recommendations, if you don't think you can stand that, I'm not going to recommend it. However, it does deal with spiritualism and theosophy and other interesting things from this time period. Um, done with a script that actually does take an interest in that stuff so if that is of interest to you then perhaps you might consider checking it out either way listen to the podcast and see what you think as for our next episode photographing fairies also worth a look but good luck getting a hold of a <laughs> a legal copy of that one but you know you've I mean, this is your brief i'm giving you time to do your best to get a hold of it so the Cottingley Fairies. What is the story in brief before we get into the film and what what do we know about it? So probably most people know it's it's that story where in the First World War 1917 two young girls in a village called Cottingley which is in Yorkshire um, produce these photographs of themselves seemingly cavorting with what looks like fairies and gnomes and sort of mystical creatures of that sort. Very famously uh, Arthur Conan Doyle the creator of Sherlock Holmes was taken hook, line and sinker by these pictures and promoted them tirelessly because it kind of sort of fit in with his spiritualist beliefs. And for decades, that's all anybody really knew about it. And um, until the 1980s, where the two uh, very old women by now uh, sort of made uh, an admission that it was a fraud, but then sort of didn't and kind of went back on it one way and another um, in, in different forms over the years. I believe the, the very last thing they said on it was that most of the pictures were faked, but, but one of them, which turns out to be the least interesting picture, to me anyway, uh, wasn't faked, so who knows. And that's, I think, what most people know about the story. There's a whole lot more to it. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the film beat by beat, spoil everything, and I'm going to talk about how the elements of the film link up with what really happened, and, you know, just kind of interesting to me how the film chooses to emphasise some elements of the story and not others. I want to put another special thanks to um, Edward Guimont for sending me a whole ton of really, really great resources for this one. Um, I'm, I'm, I feel really privileged to have great creative friends and, and contacts who um, just have have access to so much great stuff and, and can always recommend somebody or or a bit of writing, whatever it is that I'm working on. So huge thanks for that, a tremendous amount of great stuff. I'm going to focus on one article that he sent me called Borderland Forms, Arthur Conan Doyle, Albion's Daughters and the Politics of the Cottingley Fairies. This is by Alex Owen. 
from History Workshop in 1994. So a little bit dated, but it's, it's great. It gives a really good overview of the case and some really, really interesting kind of contextual stuff, like situating it in its time and place, talking about the sort of the politics of... Uh, of, of of gender and of class and how that fits into this story and loads of great extra information about Arthur Conan Doyle. So let's let's have a little quote from Mr. Alex Owen to get us started. He says, The Cottingley fairies were the embodiment of an enduring Victorian romance with fairyland. But as we shall see, the accomplishments of youthful fairy seers, that's the two girls, were one thing, and the intervention of interested gentlemen being Arthur Conan Doyle and his fellow spiritualists, quite another. It might have taken youth and femininity to create the Cottingley fairies, but it was power and privilege that made those fairies fly, as it were, in the face of the modern world. Uh, that's a fantastic quote from Owen there. Um, so fairies, yeah, like a subject that feels silly and, and trivial. I feel silly even saying it. But I hope to be able to show in this episode that this subject, especially at this time, actually had immense things to teach us about, you know, what the world might be, what, what we want it to be, and uh, who in particular gets to tell that story. So what was the state of fairies at this time in, in England and in Europe in general? They've, they were quite popular and um, all throughout the 19th century you have this building movement of you know in Germany what they call the Volk movement and which ultimately went to dark places but as the various nationalist movements in in different parts of Europe are building all these countries are trying to create an identity for themselves um, you know England very much amongst them and you've got you've got things like uh, the Brothers Grimm uh, you know collecting folk tales from around Germany and um writing their books in, in the mid-19th century, which are huge, re really popular stuff. And there's this idea that, oh my God, we've just realized that, you know, common people have this, uh, this, this folklore about them that we need to, we need to collect before it's gone. You know, this feeling that industrialization is changing us and we're losing touch with, you know, who we really are as, as Europeans or as, as Germans or as English people or whatever you have. Hans Christian Andersen does a similar thing for uh, Denmark, um, and, and this is all happening in the early 19th century. And, and there's a period in which Britain is kind of scrambling to find its own folk identity. Like, there's a long period when, you know, uh, British folklorists and, and anthropologists don't feel like they have any single compendium of, of myth or legends or folklore that does them does for them what the Brothers Grimm have done for Germany. And this... This goes right up until like the time of Tolkien and the 1950s. I mean, one of his stated goals with the Lord of the Rings and all the preliminary sort of world building he does was to, and he, he said this himself, uh, was to gift Britain with some sort of, you know, some sort of national narrative that he felt it lacked. And this has always been weird to me because, you know, I'm very aware of the vast treasury of of amazing folk stories and, and stuff that Britain has from all different elements from its Celtic stuff to its Christian stuff and, and and so many other different bits and pieces but you know to them to the folks who were deeply invested in this they personally felt that it didn't have an identity the way other countries had editing key in here I don't want to oversell this point it's certainly not how all folklorists in Britain felt at the time it was a strand of thought that did exist uh, and focusing on Tolkien particularly I think for him it was the lack of a specifically Anglo-Saxon uh, body of folklore that he felt um, as, a, as opposed to Celtic or otherwise. 
all of this is being done against this presumed background that uh, fairy stories were on the way out. They were dying and they needed to be rescued before, you know, something crucial could be lost forever. And I said, you know, I feel silly even saying the word fairy. It just seems trivial. But even today we call, you know, all kinds of fantastic stories. We call them fairy stories, you know, and therefore the, the word itself has power and has meaning. A few other important people I want to mention who do come along at this time and do kind of help build up this English idea of what their fairy folklore might be. There's a fellow called Thomas Kately, or Kately perhaps. Uh, he writes the fairy mythology in 1828. And uh, an Irish guy, a fellow called Thomas Crofton Croker, a Cork man like myself. And I know Victoria Pearson is a big fan of uh, Crofton Croker. She, she, we, we've spoken about doing an episode about this fellow and that might happen someday. But he, he collected um, folklore from my neck of the woods. He had a series of volumes called fairy legends and traditions of the south of ireland which he was putting together between 1825 and 1828 but his third volume actually dealt with a lot of english folklore as well charles kingsley comes along in the middle of the 19th century and writes the water babies and the water babies is is a kind of like a fairy or fairy adjacent tale which uh, takes place in in North Yorkshire, which is close to where we're going to be zoning in now with the Cottingley story. And um, I actually lived up in North Yorkshire for about a year, and I was extremely close <clears throat> to the particular stream where the Water Babies is set. So I know intimately the sort of pseudo-mystical landscape that Kingsley has in mind when he's, you know, adding to this uh, mythologization of of England. Later on. A number of um, Irish or Anglo-Irish people get involved. So we've got W.B. Yeats, of course, was was very, very into mysticism and collecting stories of fairies and folklore. Lady Wilde, of course, Oscar Wilde's mother, wrote a famous book of Irish folklore, which I did own a copy of at least once in my life. And I did pick through it a little bit, but I found it, I found it a little bit dated. I, I, my, my sensibilities at the time were not as uh, attuned to Victorian stuff as they are now. So there was a great Anglo-Irish interest in fairies at the end of the century. And again, this is all tied to, you know, Ireland um, coming up with its own identity at this time and trying to uh, really uh, separate itself from England by, you know, looking into its own history and folklore and, and taking all these stories and crafting this new image of itself. But, you know, interestingly, it goes back and forth between Ireland and Britain, perhaps more than either country would like to have admitted. Uh, in Ireland, you've got like a very infamous case at the end of the century, the, the Bridget Cleary incident, where in 1895, a uh, a woman was killed and a woman was, was burned to death by her husband, tragically. And what was unusual about it was that in court, he claimed that the fairies made him do it or that he believed his wife had been had been taken away and replaced by a changeling, which is, of course, a staple of of fairy lore in in many countries not just ireland but this was you know this was 1895 this was the cusp of the modern world and this story is usually parlayed as you know an example showing wow look how this sort of belief was still around and still had such power so late in the game i, I suspect and and some friends of mine who know more about this than i have opined that this was maybe more of a a, a crafty guy coming up with the a way of, of of getting out out of uh, being punished in court, but that's uh, that's beyond what I have time for here. Just to give you an idea of what where fairy lore was at this time, and we also have 
you know, in, in Victorian art and and theatre and stuff, fairies are everywhere. You've got J.M. Barry's Peter Pan comes on stage in 1904, which will show up in, in uh, Fairy Tale, A True Story. And I, they, they seem to have been everywhere in, in kids' fiction in particular. I, I think I probably caught the very tail end of this because when I was little, I used to read a lot of Enid Blyton books, which were still popular, even though, you know, they were written in the 40s. And in, in a lot of Enid Blyton books, they were always about these sort of upper middle class English families who had loads of kids and there was always a nursery. I didn't even know what a nursery was. And the nursery always had, they would always talk about how the wallpaper had fairies and dryads and brownies and sylvans and other things that I didn't know what they were when I was a kid. So I, I think this presumption that kids are into all this fairy stuff, you know was was still hanging on there a bit by the 1940s and maybe the 50s as well and of course you know i i was those books were still popular when i was a kid and and so was naughty which is very influenced by this sort of victorian-esque um uh, you know childlike fairy lore as well so this this is kind of setting the scene for you know the world in which the cottingley fairies appeared Arthur Conan Doyle is, of course, going to be a, a huge um, presence throughout all of this. And lest we forget, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's own father, Charles Altamont Doyle, was obsessed with fairies. And, and he was he was a, a desperate alcoholic, unfortunately, who spent the, the, his last years in, in, in various insane asylums in Scotland where he, he eventually died. But he was a, an artist and a watercolour painter and he did paintings specifically of fairies for children's books and and postcards and stuff like that so Doyle you know was was steeped in this stuff for much of his life and uh, Charles Altamont Doyle his father uh, clearly like the, the the veil between reality and and fiction was was thin for him and Doyle you know whether he liked it or not had some of this going on in his psyche and uh, it came bubbling up in interesting and strange ways but what were fairies? If you asked somebody at this time, you know, what, what did they what were they? What did they represent? I have taken a small quote from Alex Owen's article here. So he says the members of the Folklore Society debated with considerable energy the possible origin and meaning of fairies, and noted the frequency with which fairies were held to be fallen angels, departed souls unable to enter heaven or particularly in the Celtic tradition, souls awaiting reincarnation. Mrs. Bray had recorded the belief that fairies were the tiny souls of unbaptized infants, whilst folklorists ascribed fairy beliefs variously to ancient memories of pagan faith, mythological personifications of natural phenomena, and recollect oh, this is my favorite, recollections of a dwarfish non-Aryan race in England. If you want to hear more about that, please check out my episode about Arthur Mackin. One of the persistent themes to emerge from their studies is the clear association of fairies with the world of the dead. Fairyland itself was to replicate a kind of limbo, whilst the distinction between the fairies, spirits and ghosts was often confused. I think keep that in mind later on if you may be asking yourself why did spiritualists and theosophists you know, decide that fairies were also real? What's the connection there? I think some of this stuff was a little as they say here, a little confused sometimes. But uh, I do have some more quotes for that. I have done my best to try and figure out, uh, well, if you were a theosophist or a spiritualist at this time, well, what, what did fairies mean to you? Why were you even interested? On top of this, I want to I talk about how 
you know, the, the Cottingley fairies coming up in, it, this really blows, it, the, the original pictures are taken in 1917, but this blows up in 1920, effectively. By 1920, the war was over and so much had changed. And this story must have felt like a link to, as, as um, Alex says, a link to an England that was long gone by 1920. It's not just that, though. It's a link to the world of childhood, to magic and innocence, which are themes we're going to hit on, I think, again and again as we talk about this film. He points out that um, spiritualism had long had a hallowed place for particularly young women, as they, and young girls, as, as a, they had their sort of pseudo-spiritualist reasoning for this, but it was, it was a kind of a cherishing of, of innocence, or perceived innocence, of youth, childhood, and purity, and all of that. And not only this, but spiritualism, of course, already by this point, had a long, long, long history with spirit photography, which is you know what the Cottingley Fairies case was all about so let's get into the film fairy tale true story is a 1997 French American fantasy drama it is directed by Charles Sturridge a screenplay by Ernie Contreras I think and let's have a look. This this is a like I said, I I figured that this was the more silly, childish Disney one. It is definitely the bigger budget one, and I'm starting with this film because it's one that fits. It it does its best to stick to the story. So a lot of the details are correct. A lot of the characters are real. A lot of the names are real. The places are real. They've even filmed uh, somewhere around Cottingley for some of this as well. And there is some there is some ser- serious star power in this. I'm going to go through the cast quickly. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle is played by Peter O'Toole. We have, um, for the two young girls, we have Florence Hoth as Elsie Wright and Elizabeth Earle as Frances Griffiths. We have Harry Houdini, played by none other than Harvey Keitel. Uh, we have Edward Gardner, who is a basically the, the, not the spiritualist, the theosophist who first finds the photographs and brings them to, to the attention of Arthur Conan Doyle. He is played by Bill Nye, who's, you know, classic darling lovey of of, of uh, British films. We have Mel Gibson in a bit part as Sergeant Major Griffith. Uh, and I think those are all the big names in it. So this is, this is like a, it feels like a big budget film. It's very nicely shot. It's very beautiful. Um, and it is more the, the more lush uh, and positive of the two. So this film, I mean, I guess whether or not you enjoy it will depend on your tolerance for for schmaltz. There is a lot of schmaltz here and um, it is it is by and large a kid's film. I guess for me, what works is just kind of being a, a student of this period of time and the weird beliefs that were going around. The film does an interesting job of kind of touching on a whole bunch of them and putting them together into a context, uh, certainly a credulous one, certainly um, one uh, whose sort of takes on things I don't always find very helpful, but it is nicely put together, it's nice looking, and it is just ticking all these kind of boxes. So yeah, if you can tolerate a bit of schmaltz, you might enjoy this. Anyway, let's let's get into it. It starts off with Houdini in London doing his tricks, and um, Houdini obviously had a famous unconventional friendship with, with Arthur Conan Doyle, 
And um, what is interesting is that they would have met kind of around this time. Uh, as far as I know, they met in about 1920 when Houdini was on tour in in England. And then later on, I think within the next one or two years, Doyle was touring in America and, um, and, and returned the favor. And there's a famous story, which I'm sure I told in some episode, where... Um, when Doyle was in America, he was invited by Houdini to go and talk at this dinner of um, this Association of American Magicians, I think in New York. Um, and Doyle famously showed a, a, a bit of film for them after dinner, which was uh, these dinosaurs fighting and, and, and feuding and mystified all of them. And they all said, well, this is cr- incredible. We have no idea how you did this or where this came from. And Doyle always maintained that he, he showed this bit of film uh, precisely to mystify those who had so often and so successfully mystified others was what he said it turned out to be a, a genius bit of publicity for the, the upcoming uh, silent night movie version of the lost world his novel the lost world so that came out a few years later in 1925 and uh, of course the dinosaurs were provided by the amazing stop motion of uh, wills o'brien with models by marcel delgado so if you like that sort of thing, um, I think I talk a bit about that one probably on the King Kong episode, King Kong and Colonialism, so go check that one out. Um, but yeah, Doyle and Houdini obviously fairly famously um, knew one another and <clears throat> were friendly because they both had an interest in, in strange things and, uh, and and spiritualism and ghost stories and, and all of that. But of course, coming from other sides of the divide, there was a TV series about that a few years ago, which I probably should check out. I've heard it's it's a bit silly. Was the only was the only thing I've I've heard about it that might turn me off, but I'm sure it would be worth a look. Uh, basically, Doyle was a, a committed spiritualist, and you know spent years lecturing around the world about spiritualism, which he thought was you know the most important cause going. Whereas Houdini, as a magician, um, had an interest in in kind of debunking mediums and and stuff like that, which. You know, into the 20th century, some of the most famous debunkers you could probably name, many of them had a background in in being magicians, stage magicians, I suppose, because they know how the tricks are done. So Houdini's presence in this film is is very interesting to me. He's clearly the the foil, the, the intellectual foil, the antagonist for um, Doyle and the proponents of the fairies. And the film ultimately comes down hard on the side of belief and credulousness and the fairies. But it doesn't... To my mind, anyway, it doesn't demonize Houdini. It shows him to be a smart and a shrewd and a, a well-meaning guy who has Doyle's best interests at heart and isn't isn't like a cold, hard, nasty, closed-minded skeptic. He's just a guy who who um, you know means well and uh, believes what he believes <clears throat> and is open. Well, not open to change, but certainly he's not a sort of a, a two-dimensional villain, which is where this film might have gone in other hands. We have uh, Peter O'Toole as Doyle, not my favourite Doyle ever. Um, O'Toole is, of course, very famous, well-known, uh, you know, classic Hollywood guy, um, with a lot of lot of charm to this role. He just, dang it, he just doesn't look like Conan Doyle. His head shape is completely wrong. He's just he's a guy of the right age, with an upper class British accent, and he's got a moustache, and that's about all there is going for him. I looked up videos of Doyle talking to see what he sounded like. I'd always presumed he had a Scottish accent. What he there's a video of him from 1929 you can see on youtube um and it's incredible that you can see this guy talking you know because he we associate him so heavily with the victorian era he had a, a weird mix of old-fashioned upper class received pronunciation 
you know, making him sound very English, but he has a very strong Scottish burr on just just a few a few sounds. So worth worth a listen. Um, Peter O'Toole doesn't try and do anything like that. He just sounds like your regular upper class Brit from those days. I have a small Houdini story, which is that when I was in working in America years ago, um, we had the place I worked had a visit from a school group who had a teacher who had been a magician, and he was a an amazing guy who uh, was undergoing chemotherapy at the time and still you know was, was suffering the the terrible effects of that but still um cared enough about this trip to bring his his class over and and um he had the lar- so we claimed anyway he had the largest collection of houdini memorabilia in oh i don't know maybe oh, the, the the midwestern states or something like that but he whatever the truth was he was an incredible magician and an incredible um, Houdini fan and he did a private show for us one evening with just a few people and uh, you know would explain quite a lot about misdirection it's a bit like uh, I've, I've seen Darren Brown perform as well and he does the same thing where he fools you into thinking that he's explaining how the tricks work by telling you about um, uh, misdirection and what you, what he's doing with his hands and talking about location on the body and how they trick you into looking over here and over there and then you think you understand what's going on and then they pull something out of the bag which is utterly amazing and I, th- I think until you've seen a really skilled magician do something p- pull tricks like this in close quarters where there's nowhere to hide you know we were in a kind of a semicircle around around him there was no angle from which we couldn't see what was going on and he was still able to fool us over and over and over again and I think everybody who investigates weird stuff should you know see a really good magician up close at least once just so you know what's available like what can be done and and how convincing it can look that somebody who's really skeptical minded still can't can can be sitting there knowing it's not real and still and still not have an an explanation for what they just saw with their own two eyes it'll really make you think differently and that's what houdini did a lot which was that he would do these amazing things um to show people that anything the spiritualists were doing could be done by other means and he would he would not explain to them how he was doing it but he would say look this is not supernatural right i'm not i'm a a magician i might not tell you my tricks but uh, just rest assured that this is not supernatural so we cut to a a peter pan uh, theater performance which of course fits in with the whole edwardian obsession with with fairies that we talked about earlier the film you know, it takes a few moments to focus on the guys backstage doing the special effects, and I guess they're saying, "Well, these are the these are the fake fairies." You know, this is how false false uh, magic happens, and just a few themes that are hit on here. You know, we get the the famous scene where, uh, you know, old Peter Pan says, "Oh, if children believe in fairies, then you know, Tinkerbell comes back to life," and um, you know, the the subtext for the name of the film is Peter Pan or the boy who wouldn't grow up which is, is a theme here, which is that, like, only children can see the fairies. And um, in reality, Conan Doyle and he, his kind of collaborators, Gardner, and, and eventually another fellow called Hodgson, were really fixated on this idea that the two girls could see the fairies because they were young, because they were children. And as the years went by, um, they became increasingly... And this is all a matter of record. They 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 wrote how they were becoming worried that as as time went by, the, the girl's connection to the spirit world would lessen because they were growing up and they were becoming, you know, more like ordinary adults. So there's this weird fixation on on youth and purity here, which, you know, make of that what you will, but it's certainly a, an element of both the film and the story um, in real life. 
we find out that in in the family so the names of the two girls are uh, the older girl is Elsie Wright and the younger girl is Frances Griffith now the Griffith family rather the uh, the the Wright family has an extra element in this film which I don't think is real which is that there was a uh, a brother who died from illness and this is kind of tying into the general theme of of loss and death which tends to show up in any story set during this period because it's just after the war and the, the usual explanation is that the, the the growth of interest in both spiritualism and theosophy is because of the vast amount of death that happened during the war and and you know enormous numbers of people um grieving and and turning to explanations to give them comfort the let's talk about the age of the girls because um in the film they're both really really they're quite young they're nine i think the younger girl is like nine or ten and the older girl is maybe 12 and this is in both films this is the case the 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 ages of the kids are put down and i think this is because yeah i mean all that stuff i said about the real life situation about the 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 theosophists being obsessed with the youth of the girls um i think also when you realize that in reality they were 10 and 16 it kind of puts a different spin on things and even if as some have written uh elsie was maybe a kind of a childish 16 she played with dolls she was obsessed with fairies even even so like it puts a completely different spin on things there's a huge difference between oh we have these pictures that were taken by these darling little girls and they couldn't possibly have faked something and done it so well whereas like 16 16 year olds are smart they can they can do things they know what they're doing you know it's, it's just different and i can see why neither film really wanted to go there they both made the kids younger to kind of just let's let's not go there let's brush that a little bit under the carpet we get some lovely uh, photography of the location which as i said is somewhere in the region of where this really happened so it's it's cottingly outside bingley um outside bradford and i realize i've been quite close to here because uh, in the old days when i was in north yorkshire and i used to get the train down to leeds and then down to london to see friends and um, bingley was one of the stations on the stop or one of the stops on the on the route so I must have been reasonably close to here. I think the the village is about three miles away. So uh, everybody, this this film leans into the true location much better than uh, photographing fairies, which has very little interest in that. That film, if I recall, well, we'll find out in the next episode, but kind of happens in a more generic pastoral England kind of a place. But whereas here they lean into the, the, the northern accents, the Bradford accent. And um, the, an accuracy here is that the younger girl Frances has come back from South Africa in reality though her life was a little bit more complicated than that so her father as they show in the film was a soldier or an officer of some sort and he was stationed in South Africa so the family had been living there for a couple of years but prior to that even though she was English she had grown up largely in Canada for about four years and by the time she came back to England she actually had a whopping big Canadian accent and was apparently mocked for this incessantly by the the kids of the village so um again another thing that just would have been confusing and and complicate the story and didn't need to be there so i guess they didn't put it in there we see her on the train and the train is full of soldiers coming back from the front and some of them some of them are horribly wounded and the film doesn't really shy away from that and i really popped for this bit when uh, some like religious person is going down the aisles of the carriages dropping off leaflets and the leaflet is about the angels of mons which is one of my favorite like pseudo paranormal stories so in front of me here on my bookshelf i've got a great book called 
The Angels of Mons by Doc. Uh, I don't know if he's Doc. David Clark is the is the writer. Now he seems to be better known these days for UFO books, but uh, The Angels of Mons is an amazing book because it it situates the. If you don't know the story, it's it's this myth from the First World War that like some sort of religious or supernatural beings helped um, the British expeditionary force escape from being surrounded at the Battle of Mons or Mon maybe uh, outside Belgium at the, right at the beginning of the war like August 14 something like that and what what David Clark does is he situates this in well what kind of a world was World War One Britain in terms of weird thinking so he talks about all these other myths and legends that were like the, the scare ship invasion the crucified canadian um uh, what else? he talks about angel sightings in greys and essex and loads of other things as well and and just you know it what you, the angels of mons has always struck me as such a weird story but like he points out dang this was not unusual people were <laughs> reporting weird stuff and, and religious weird stuff left right and center throughout the first world war and in britain on the home front as well so I'm I'm delighted to see it popping up in this film. It is absolutely appropriate for these different stories to be intersecting because they are products of the same sort of time and place. We then see a bit more of, of Cottingley as depicted in the film. And yes, it's a magical, mythical, green, pastoral slice of forgotten pre-war England. And this is not just, you know, 1990s nostalgia. This is how it was seen at the time. This is 1920s nostalgia. So one thing the film does is it telescopes, you know, when everything happened. The truth is that the first two photographs were taken in 1917. And then three years later, it came to the attention of Arthur Conan Doyle and Gardner and these folks. And they started showing up at the house and talking to the girls who by that point were 14 and 19 and and can you imagine being that age being 19 and this little joke that you did three years ago and then these you know respectable upper class guys or middle upper middle class guys who are famous authors and scientists are showing up and trying to get you to <laughs> talk more about it and giving you cameras and trying to get you to go out into the into the garden to take more photographs so uh, but so Gardner when he did show up in about 1920 basically uses the same language that I just did here he basically says oh you know I've come to this beautiful bucolic village you know the the remnants of oldie worldy England and only in such a place could could you know fairies still be out there so he's really telling a lot when he when he says that I don't have the exact quote here but it's it's quite like that I don't think I'm being unfair to the spirit of it we meet Elsie's mother. The two girls are cousins, by the way. So the younger girl, Frances, has been sent over from South Africa to stay with them for a while. And we meet, and, and then Elsie is, is the older girl, and she's the, the family or her parents. So we meet her mother, Polly, who the film shows as being interested in theosophy, which is true. Uh, in the film, they make it out to be because of you know, her grief, dealing with the, the death of the, of the brothers. So... You know, it's it's a handy shorthand for, you know, a real phenomenon that was a big deal at this time. It's not directly tied into the war, but um, it, it performs, I think, the same function. So the two girls are, you know, playing, they're getting to know each other and they're playing in the garden. And out the, out the back of the house is a stream called uh, Cottingley Beck. Beck is a Northern England word for local term for a stream or a small, small river. 
And what's cool here, I quite like that the two girls are both really fluent in like some kind of fairy lore. They're always asking each other questions about, you know, what do fairies wear or what do they, how do they work or where do they live? And they both know it. And this is fairly, fairly in keeping with my, what my research has said about all that stuff we said at the beginning. You know, that they would have been, kids at this time would have been reading books that were full of this stuff. And uh, from my own reading of uh, Princess Princess Mary's uh, gift book, which will come up later, <laughs> um, which we know they owned, uh, yeah, they they would absolutely have been have been reading this stuff, and I think this comes across nicely in the film. And then they see a fairy right away, and this is kind of make or break time. This will either take you out of the film or or not, because it's a lovely shot. It's uh, the the special effects are, are good. They're actually. Uh, real people that have been shrunk down through it's probably digital effects but it, i guess it could be forced perspective but uh, it depends on the shot anyway the fairy flies around the 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 beck and it, it looks it's a wonderful shot it's really well done but i would still have preferred if they'd kept this ambiguous because without without ever seeing the fairies and they're not in it much like they're not as central as you'd think they don't show up that often um, it's a very interesting film about belief and about Doyle versus um, Houdini and the girl's interior, you know, belief, world of belief versus what happens to that world when it's outed and and taken a hold of by the grown-ups. And that's all really interesting. And I, I would love if they had left the existence of the fairies ambiguous so that, you know, you could believe it if you wanted to, but you could take the film a completely different way if you wanted to. And, and there are hints of that, and, and mostly in the characterization of Houdini and the, the lack of demonization of him, but the film ultimately doesn't go there, and, and that's what makes this a kid's film, and that's what makes it schmaltzy, and that might might be a deal-breaker for you. Uh, we get a short scene with like industrial an industrialist who's like the landowner, and the father is working for him, and that's, you know, true-ish in that the father was an electrician who worked for the local estate. Um, weirdly, this doesn't really go anywhere. Um, I know that when in in 1921, like that one of the last times that Gardner went up to Cottingley to talk to the girls, there was talk that the the beck and the area around it was going to be um, kind of turned into some kind of industrial plant. And if you know anything about the history of the north of England, all of this is is quite is quite relevant and quite spot on. But the film doesn't really go anywhere with this, um, which I'm okay with because. Like, you know, the evil industrialist who uh, wants to spoil everything and has to be defeated is just, it's just a trope. It's an old trope in films. I'm bored of it. In real life, <laughs> I think it's a gigantic problem and we don't talk about it enough. But in films, like, nobody ever really does much interesting with it. It's a bit hackneyed. We get the, the famous wet dress story, which is the idea that uh, Frances, like, came back from playing in the beck and her dress was wet and the mother gives out to her. And this is why, because they're angry about that, they take the camera and decide to go and photograph the fairies, which is, when you hear this story, that's usually how the story starts. As far as I can tell, could be wrong here, but um, I think this wasn't added until much later. I think this is a detail that the girls said later in life. I didn't see it. I reread a bunch of contemporary news reports and uh, I, re I, I read through Arthur Conan Doyle's 1922 book about this, The Coming of the Fairies, and I didn't spot it. Could be wrong here. Any listeners who know better, by all means, get in touch. But we, we get this played straight in the film and then we get, we get a conversation between the younger girl, Frances, and, and the mother, Polly, about how grown-ups can't see fairies, you know? 
which again fits into sort of Doyle's take on all of this. Doyle never went up there physically, incidentally. The time the timing was kind of weird. So in 1920, uh, the photographs had been circulating for a little while by then in in theosophical circles, and we'll see in a moment how that happened. But Doyle happened to be basically just about to go off on a speaking tour of Australia and New Zealand. So he kind of set Gardner as his man on the scene to, to do most of the investigation. And uh, a lot of that stuff happened while Doyle was out of the country. We get a scene where we see that the girls like have done drawings of the fairies. And in reality, Elsia, the older girl, was a fairly talented artist. And she had some, she'd had some jobs. So she left school at like 13 and a half, which... I suppose it was not that unusual at the time, but um, it, it didn't show her to be a particularly academic person. Uh, by comparison, her cousin stayed in school much longer and, and was large, largely seen to have been a more academic person. So, uh, you know, I, either either opportunity was available to you depending on your circumstances. But she went on and did various jobs, including working a few months in a photographer's studio, which people often bring up as showing that uh, well she might have had the ability to do some sort of trickery with the cameras interestingly i don't actually think that's how the, uh, the photographs were ever taken or at least i don't think that's how they were faked uh, also she had a she had a job working for a like a christmas card making company uh, now whether she did any art for them i don't know what i do know is that when gardner showed up to meet her in 1920 you know, as a young woman, as a 19-year-old, he had her, like, do some drawings and paintings and stuff, and he decided that while she was pretty good at doing landscapes, her drawings of, of human figures and fairies weren't good enough to, you know, have make her the faker. Never mind being able to do it, like, as a, years earlier as a 16-year-old, but uh, we'll, we'll, get to, um, we'll get to those visits uh, in good time. So we see the father's camera. It's a pretty good reproduction of the camera he did have at the time called a Midge Quarter Plate, which some sources have described it as a Kodak camera. Um, I don't think it was... It was made by a British company called Butcher, but as far as I can tell, the, the, the plates themselves, the photographic plates, were made by Kodak, so maybe that's, that's what they mean. Doyle, in his book, insists that this is the only camera the girls used. Um, other folks have said that, uh, based on the some some specifics of the photographs the plates must have been a different size meaning that more than one camera was used but honestly i don't think the photographs were the result of any camera trickery so i don't i don't think it's super relevant to anything we then get uh, to meet gardner himself and he's played by bill nye who uh, not my favorite stunt casting here he hams it up a bit more than i think he needs to but anyway he's uh, speaking at the theosophical society in bradford which is in fact where um, in, in reality, the mother, Polly, did attend this Theosophical Society in Bradford, and that's how they got the photographs. Now, it wasn't until 1919, a couple of years later, so like I said, the film is, is telescoping all these events. So what happened was, um, she was attending a talk which was already about fairies. So even before these photographs were, you know, became public, uh, the, 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 theosophy, the Theosophical world had an interest in fairies, which I think is worth is worth bearing in mind now why the girls did this i think myself was probably an intensely personal reason i think they were just annoyed with the parents about something maybe the dress story was true but for whatever reason they were just doing a bit of trickery i think to have fun within the family and i don't think they thought much more about that and i don't think they intended it to go any further than that it definitely wasn't 
some sort of deliberate hoax because they they themselves made no attempt to show the photographs to anybody. Uh, incidentally, the first two photographs that would have been taken at this time were, of course, the the two two of the more famous ones, I suppose. One is Frances, the younger girl, surrounded by like five or six dancing fairies, and the other the second one is the older girl, Elsie, sitting down wearing a hat, and she's got this weird little gnome guy giving her like a bunch of flowers or something, or he's kind of dancing around, I think. Um, and those those were the originals taken in 1917 and just kind of forgotten until a couple of years later, the mother, Polly, gives them to Gardner at this talk. And um, Arthur Conan Doyle eventually, this is years later, and eventually by 1920, Doyle hears about this through some connection he has with the, there's a spiritualist magazine called Light, which uh, apparently was one of the more sedate. <laughs> they, they were not as given to making weird claims as some of the other uh, theosophical papers. And Doyle either reads about it in light or, or hears about it from somebody on, on, the, on the paper. Because the sources I've read are a little bit scatty about that. I've, I've come across both versions of the story. But basically, he's already writing an article for the Strand magazine, which is the famous magazine where he publishes all his Sherlock Holmes stories. And he's about to head off to Australia when he hears that Gardner has these photographs and, you know, he includes those in the article and the article goes out for Christmas of 1920 and that's when when things kind of kick off. Meanwhile, in the film, we see the father um, in, in a dark room he's, and he's, he's, make, he's producing the photographs and that's true. He was an amateur photographer and he did have his own dark room and that, that is how this this happened. Doyle, is, incidentally, was a reasonably skilled amateur photographer as well. Again, people talk about this a lot, but I, that's not how the photographs were were faked. So I don't I don't think it matters. The film rather correctly shows the father to have been skeptical. He he never took this seriously. It's the mother who was really interested with her with her background in theosophy. So we see the two the two classic pictures. And um, and then we get the mother going to the Theosophical Society meeting and giving the pictures to Gardner. Now it's a little bit different in the film. She's a bit more dramatic. She like he's leaving after after doing his talk and he's on a train and she accosts him. But I, I think in reality it was just at the end of this meeting. Just interesting again that the meeting was already about about fairies. So this fit into their pre-consisting ideas rather than the other way around. One cool thing that happens at the meeting is a guy gets up and uh, gives a talk about the angels of Mons. He's he's a witness from from the, from the battle and he saw the angels himself. And it's a it's a moving moment. And we see Polly, we see her her deep need to believe. And again, she's she's upset because of the the loss of her son, and um, she needs something to cling on to. So that uh, that scene kind of does the job. And then we get to meet Snelling, who's a photographer from Harrow, a town called Harrow. And this is a, a real thing that happened as well. And the film does a fair job of showing what his conclusions were about the photographs. So Doyle and Gardner had the photographs sent to this guy in real life. And um, basically, well, they, they sent them to a few. And there were two other expert photographers who didn't, who weren't impressed. But Doyle chose not to publicize that too much. Instead, he stuck with Snelling, who said good things about his photographs. Snelling here says that, oh yeah, I can confirm that these are open air, single exposure photographs, meaning they weren't double exposure, which is how most spirit photography at the time was done, which is basically you load your film into the camera, 
you take your photograph, your base photograph, and then you load the film in again, and then you photograph your ghost. And then one of the images appears on top of the other in a sort of a transparent form. So it looks like, you know, a spirit or whatnot. So by saying that this is an open air single exposure, he's basically saying, look, there was no trickery like within the camera or behind the scenes. He then weirdly says that the, the, the photograph shows that the fairies were moving during the exposure. And this is weird because he stuck, he stuck to this for years afterwards. He never changed his story on this. And to be fair, if you look at the pictures today, this is the one thing you can say for definite, which is that, look, stuff is moving in the pictures, like the girls are moving slightly in some of the pictures. There's a, the Beck is behind Francis in the first picture and it's moving and it's blurry. But the fairies are are absolutely crystal clear. And it's very clear that they're not moving. So I don't know why Snelling insisted on this. Now, I've heard that the photographs we have today, the versions of them, are not the same original. Like, they don't, they don't look the same way they would have looked in 1917. They're kind of cleaned up from the negatives. I've no idea if that's true. Uh, but it, it suggests that the f- pictures would have been slightly blurrier back then. But all I can say is if that, like the fairies are so clear that if the pictures were a bit blurrier back then and the fairies looked like they were moving, then the girls must have looked like (laughs) you wouldn't even, they'd be so blurry you wouldn't even be able to make out their faces. Snelling predictably in the film goes on at length about how, oh, nobody, you know, in all of England could fake something like this, least of all two innocent young girls. And again, that's part of why the film makes them younger because it's you know it makes more sense it's more convincing for two little kids to not be able to fake something than like a teenager i think again we get a few more scenes with houdini and and i quite like how his skepticism is taken seriously he faces off against arthur conan doyle in his house and the film gives both of them a bit of a bit of gravitas and a bit of respect the film is clearly siding with doyle which which makes me sad based on what happened to him in real life we get we get a few elements to his life here so he talks about his his son kingsley who died in 1918 of flu while fighting in the war people often say that doyle turned to spiritualism because of the death of his son but the evidence is that he was well 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 into it for for a long time before that He, he came out as a committed spiritualist at least two years before kingsley died but it certainly fueled his his belief in it for or, or his the, the kind of the the extent to which he kept working on it might have been fueled by his feelings about his son interestingly he also talks about his father here he takes out some of the pictures that were painted by his father of fairies and he mentions that while he lived in the asylum and died there he was seeing fairies every single day and the film kind of tries to point this out as a magical moment that helps to prove that they might be real when like really dude died in an insane asylum was seeing fairies every day like not not it's not quite the uh not quite the win you think it is movie and uh, we get a bit of text from doyle i get a, a quote from doyle that he gives and it's i recognize it from from reading his book the coming of the fairies where he talks about how you know this is the beginning of a new era and you know we're on the cusp of this new continent practically of, of understanding and he talks about how you know, Columbus must have felt the same way when he was on the cusp of America. And who could, who could have known then what this new discovery meant for the world? And all of that is taken from the book. And, and Doyle utterly, utterly believed that. And whether you think, like the film does, that this is, you know, uh, inspirational, magical, or whether you think that this is a, 
a rather sad reflection on a, on a guy who, you know, had previously been associated with logic through his, his famous character Sherlock Holmes. Well, only you can decide. So then we get a scene which is entirely fictional. It's when Doyle and Houdini arrive at the house. This never happened, but it's a way for the film to once again have these two characters play off against one another using the, the fairy case as a kind of a lightning rod. I, I, I like this because, well, that's to, to me, that's one of, one of the emotional hearts of the film is, is, is that debate. And I really like Harvey Keitel as, as Houdini. And I, I like the fact that the film... Um, you know, allows him to be a, a good a good guy. He just happens to be on the other side of the belief issue, um, to that uh, of the film. However, hold that thought because some interesting stuff does come in a little bit later on. <clears throat> in reality, what this is standing in for is is the the visits in, in nineteen twenty when Gardner and uh, another fellow called Hodgson, who was a, uh, I believe he was a spiritualist. He he was a friend of Doyle's, who was some sort of, um, psychic or 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 clairvoyant i suppose and so this, there were several trips up to the village with the, with these gentlemen and and hodgson in about 1921 basically took the two girls and his wife was there as well i believe and all around the back looking for the fairies and absolutely went to town on this he he claimed that he was seeing them left right and center there were he wrote pages and pages and pages about this of how he could see you know, armies of pixies coming after them and, and loads of fairies lined up on the on the logs and flying everywhere and squadrons of them. And it's like, to some degree, it feels like the girls were giving him what he wanted. Um, on the other hand, they, they themselves said later in life that they presumed he was a fraud and a phony and everyone knew it. They just didn't really want to say anything about it. So it's hard to know now with, with, with so many years later, but it, it seems it might have been a case of you know these two groups of people playing off one another giving each other what they what they thought the other wanted i think it's pretty clear that the girls had had enough like long before this and you can tell especially in the interviews with elsie um you know she had not expected this little bit of mischief to come back and and was surprised and didn't really want tried to downplay it without telling them that the photographs were faked because they didn't really want to embarrass anybody but at the same time they didn't really want to encourage them either and yeah over the years the the women as they grew older had to, not the most complimentary things to say about to Gardner to some degree and, and absolutely certainly Hodgson who they they thought was an out and out faker in the film we see Gardner um giving them a camera each to go and take more photographs and this is something that did happen in 1920 and this is where the the second lot of photographs come from and Gardner in the film makes he he says that um he believes the two girls are clairvoyant and that they work better together like they have some sort of um link that they work the the, the way the psychic stuff works that it is more powerful when the two of them are together now I did say earlier that I would read a bit of a quote uh, from Alex Owen about uh, a little bit more about why the theosophists were interested in fairies and what that connection was so um, I'm going to read from his paper now. He says, As theosophists, Gardner and Hodgson largely shared Conan Doyle's views. They subscribed to the notion of rarefied and invisible forms of matter, a subject upon which theosophy had much to say, and Gardner was confident that he could offer a rational explanation, which will be at least intelligible to a logical mind, if not entirely convincing. 
In support of this claim, both men were able to identify the Cottingley fairies as just one example of what Gardner calls a, quote, sister stream of evolving life which swarms unseen in our world. It comprises a vast array of different kinds of elementals, nature spirits, fairies, and higher angels, all of which work together in the service of nature. Indeed, the sessions with Hodgson and the two girls appeared to support a theosophical cosmology. He goes on to say, The fairies depicted in the Cottingley photographs were thus interpreted by Conan Doyle, Gardner and Hodgson in the light of all they knew of esoteric lore, and in turn slipped easily into an already developed naturalistic theosophical paradigm of elemental fauna. Ah, oh, pretty nice. Uh, he Finally, he says, Their makeup and even the reasons for their existence, because uh, um, in, in, the, in Doyle's book, The Coming of the Fairies, is a final chapter where he includes some material by, I think, Hodgson, who basically attempts to give a sort of an entire natural history for the fairies. I say natural history, but it's more like it's, uh, esoteric, you know, occult history. But he does his best to break them down into this sort of sensible, understood way of, of living. Um, like he says, like a, almost like a parallel evolutionary stream. Um, which is very Victorian, and um, and it says here in the paper, um, it all became part of an ordered, hierarchical, uh, and uh, evolutionary, and perhaps quintessentially Victorian world. So again, you know, like Victorianism is all about understanding things. It's about rationality. It's about uh, order, and and of course, in the middle of the nineteenth century, Darwin comes along with this you know, explanatory force for explaining how everything in, in nature can be ordered and ranked accordingly. So not surprising to see that sort of thinking showing up again here, even in in the world of the occult. And from the coming of the fairies itself, from Doyle's book, he wrote, One may well ask what connection has this fairy lore with the general scheme of psychic philosophy, the connection is slight and indirect, consisting only in the fact that anything which widens our conceptions of the possible and shakes us out of our time-rutted lines of thought helps us to regain our elasticity of mind and thus to be more open to new philosophies. The fairy question is inf infinitely small and unimportant compared to the question of our own fate and that of the whole human race. So it kind of feels to me like... Like he's trying to downplay it here, which doesn't really fit with the facts. It doesn't fit with all, all the personal letters and correspondence you can read from him and, and the others showing exactly how excited he was about this. He was delighted to have what he considered to be sort of the sort of hard proof that might convince skeptics uh, as to the existence of any any psychic phenomena, I guess. So let's mention these three uh, later 1920 photographs very quickly. You've probably seen them. One of them is uh, Francis, who's now sort of 12 or 13. And looks looks perceptibly different in the both of them look noticeably different in the photographs. Um, she's got uh, a, a, a kind of a dancing fairy in front of her. Elsie is is being given flowers by a fairy in another photograph. And then the final kind of mysterious one is called Fairies and Their Sunbath. And um, it's not really clear what this is supposed to be depicting. Some people have theorized that it's one that just didn't come out properly the way the girls had hoped but it's like a, a bunch of the fairies on their own with no humans present which i think is what makes it less impressive and they're kind of on top of one another and it's kind of indistinct and difficult to make out exactly what's going on weirdly this is the one that in later years in the early 80s they um insisted might have been the only real one uh, i believe through interviews in 
the unexplained magazine, which I have I have some collections of those in front of me, but not anything with the with the fairies in them. You, if you're of a certain age, you might remember those if you're on, on my side of the pond. So we get a scene where Doyle and Gardner take the photographs to the Kodak company to check them out. And this is something that really happened. And the, the, the film tallies closely to what they said, which is basically, you know, we didn't find any evidence of, uh, of you know, tampering with the images. They're single exposure images, like Snelling said. But these findings are not conclusive. We we can't, we're not saying there's literally fairies here. And supposedly some of the members of the staff were on record as saying, isn't it strange how the fairies have very up-to-date fashions and, uh, you know, fashionable dresses and fashionable Parisian bobbed haircuts, which, uh, you know, makes it seem like the sort of thing that a, uh, you know, a fashion-conscious teenage girl might have come up with, I think, uh, rather than, uh, you know, evidence of some uh, elemental being which probably wouldn't feel the need to uh, stick close to you know tw- early 20th century fashions there's a, a telling moment here and i don't the film doesn't emphasize it i don't know that the film intends this to mean what it does but uh, one of the characters i think it's gardner says that um you know these are these are two little girls of uh, from an ordinary working class family you know what kind of uh, clever ingeniousness or cleverness could they possibly have come up with to fool us and the film doesn't focus on this, but this, you know, in truth, this is how the story was interpreted. And this is why I think the, the age of the girls was so important, so that it would seem, uh, you know, more convincing. And uh, also the class element creeping in there as well, you know, the implication being that somebody from this class couldn't possibly have come up with something as clever that could fool us, you know, us educated gentlemen. And again, in in the article by Alex Owen, he makes much of that. It's a, it's a really good um, he makes a really good case for the class difference here. And of course, uh, you know, at this time in Britain, the the class structure is is all important. And um, you know, there's there's elements there that have never really uh, gone away. I suppose. We then see Doyle getting ready to publish his article in the Strand. I think it's worth remembering that even before the Cottingley Fairies came along, he was ready getting ready to publish an article about fairies in the strand just to show you that you know fairies were already in the in the conversation before before this even happened he mentions that he's going to change the names of the girls which he did uh, and the film shows that they were then uncovered so he gave them pseudonyms but they were uncovered by a local paper which is what happened as well we see this happening in the film there's a nice scene where they get some post uh, from I think their father I think from from Francis's father who at this point is still you know in in the war in Africa and uh, there's just it's just a small little element but there's a sticker on the envelope that says opened by censor which is just a little reminder of the realities of wartime Britain and that's something that uh, Clark makes much of in the Angels of Mons book where he talks about one of the reasons why rumors were flying around so much in Britain during the war was because of the censorship. There was really, really extreme censorship. And um, there were times, especially towards the beginning of the war, when people people knew very little about what was going on and how the war was going. And the the government had a you know utter stranglehold on, on information. And in this sort of environment, uh, all sorts of weird rumors uh, were going around. So we do get a shot of the fairies... Uh, leaving like as if they're packing their bags to go because at this point the the Cottingley case has become a cause celebre and loads of people are showing up to go hunting for them and this just makes me think of the time period this I, I think it's key that this story happened when it does I, I don't think it would have had the same 
impact if it had been in, in Victorian times. I don't think it would have had the same impact if it had been the 1950s. I think the fact that it's World War One era, it's like a border time. It's like a border between the Victorian world and, and the modern world. It's got one foot in each. You know, you, you to me, the... I suppose people use the phrase the long 19th century, but I, I think for me personally, like the long Victorian era, really, it doesn't die with Victoria in 1901. It dies with, with, with the with the Somme in 1914. And, you know, I think that's the real line, meaningful line in the sand where the sort of ideals of the Victorian Europe really are, are finally killed. And, um, you know, it's just it's such an interesting time for for having the Victorian mores, but then also you know technology, motor cars, uh, you know weapons of of fast, and quick, and and terrible death are being used. Very interesting time, and the girls in the film go to London to be present for the the publication of Arthur Conan Doyle's book, which in reality was a few years later. That was nineteen twenty two, but at at this point the film is utterly mixed up in its in its timeline. There's not much point in trying to connect uh, what what we're seeing to a particular time anymore it's just some kind of you know ambiguous time towards the end of the war uh, but we hear the phrase that the, the fairies are bringing hope to the empire and as the two girls travel around london you know going to these parties and um, and, and presentations and stuff you know everyone they meet is, is desperately in need of hope because the you know london has been so run down by the 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 war and and they meet sick children in a hospital and and there were soldiers who were wounded from the war who need to be something to believe in so again the emphasis on on, on something to believe is is very strong here we get a wonderful scene where they're at a party for the release of the book and houdini has a quiet word with elsie and it's it's a lovely scene where again houdini is allowed to be a skeptic he's allowed and the film doesn't condemn him for it and I think it's the, the best element of this film. All, for me personally, all the best and most interesting parts of this film feature Houdini. Just the mere fact that he's allowed to be a skeptic and not condemned for it. He, and he, it's subtle. I mean, his own, by the end of the film, I think you could argue either way that the film is trying to make out like he's become a believer or he's not. He chooses his words very carefully and he's allowed to remain a shrewd and skeptical, but never a cynical observer of bizarre phenomena he he delivers a great line of dialogue where she asks him does he ever tell anybody how he does his tricks and of course he says no a magician never tells but then he says you know what though i don't think people actually want to know and and the implications here are, are vast the implications are you know that well if you know the stuff he does isn't literally real but people want to believe in that and and it's almost like the film is allowing itself that little bit of ambiguity of saying, well, maybe the Cottingley fairies aren't real, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is that we need to believe. And maybe my mind is in this mindset because I'm I'm preparing for an episode on um, Picnic at Hanging Rock, which, of course, is one of the, the very famous sort of ambiguous um, mystery stories from, from literature where, you know, it's not supposed to matter whether it's true or not. But I just, the film, you know, 99% a kid's film where the fairies are real, but it leaves just that tiny little bit in there. Um, and again, it's one of the reasons why I wish the film was more ambiguous in its depiction of the fairies themselves, but whatever. But Conan Doyle's phrase, you know, nobody actually wants to know the truth, puts me in mind of another famous man of, you know, mysticism and ghost stories and debunking from this era, which of course is Harry Price. And if you've heard our episode about Borley Rector, you will know that he famously said, 
People don't want the debunking, they want the bunk. And and that's kind of what Houdini is saying here, but he's not saying that in a cynical way. He's not saying that this is a bad or a terrible thing. He's just saying, you know, people need something to believe in. And sometimes whether it's true isn't the point. And then we come to what I think is probably the emotional heart of the film, which is a very nice sequence with an amazing score, with where we see three, effectively three confidence tricks being unveiled at the same time. It's, it's like a montage. So in one... In one frame, Houdini is doing one of his tricks on stage where he's in, in the water tank and he has to escape from it. And in another slightly weird subplot that comes out of nowhere, uh, the, the girl's dad is inv involved in uh, what's, what's basically a scam, a chess scam. He's playing chess against some guy and it's presumably for a bet for money. And he's playing against a, a mysterious character who's supposed to be a mute who's an amazing chess player and it, it turns out he's not mute so he's obviously faking it and the guy there's a kind of a carnival barker who represents him and it, it's clearly it's clearly a hustle and then the third element that happens at the same time as all this is the journalist from the local newspaper who er earlier discovered the identities of the girls is is in Cottingley and breaks into their house to try and find out if there's any evidence that they fake the photographs and indeed he does find cut out paintings of the of the fairies and he sets them up with with hat pins as was done in real life and finds that they match the photographs now again the film is allowing itself a little bit of ambiguity here because the it shows us that the cutout paintings match the picture exactly and he he actually works out how it might have been done and in reality this is what the the women claimed was done they they painted these pictures from the the princess mary gift book which i've read some of you can it's on gutenberg and um it's uh, basically a, a children's book from from the war where very there's lots of interesting stuff in it folks there's like loads of my favorite turn of the century authors like so a lot of super mega imperialist people like like Rudyard Kipling and Doyle himself and H.R. Uh, Haggard write these kind of weird pro-empire stories set in exotic places and there's one uh, poem uh, by by somebody called Alfred Noyes called A Spell for a Fairy with paintings and drawings by Claude A. Shepperson and uh, this is the one that most folks now reckon Elsie took the paintings from. And they do look, they do look, if you, if you take the figures individually, there's one black and white painting of four or five figures dancing. And if you kind of separate them and turn them around slightly, they, they're in the same positions as the fairies from the, the famous first photograph. So yeah, so like I said, the film is allowing itself a bit of ambiguity here. They're kind of saying, well... You know, as far as this journalist is, is concerned, he has discovered the evidence that it is a fake. And so we, we've got these three tricks that are all happening at the same time. They're all a confidence trick of some kind. And interestingly, we don't see how any of them are actually done, which is what Houdini said. He said the audience, well, we, the audience watching this film, don't actually want to know how what really happened. And we, you know, the, the public who are interested in the story of the Cottingy Ferry, maybe we don't actually want to know the truth so we all know the story that you know it could have been that they were cutouts they look like cutouts the women have occasionally but not always said that that's how they did it but maybe we don't want to know because we in this in this <clears throat> montage we don't see how houdini does his trick we know it's a fake because we see him outside of the tank you know when, when the curtain is down but we don't see how he gets out and we don't see how he gets back in again we don't see how this guy is doing his chess scam. We just know that he is a scam. And we never truly learn the significance of the paintings the journalist finds. 
Uh, the film keeps showing us the fairies, so we know they're real as an audience, and yet he has found this evidence which matches perfectly, and that gives me a certain sense of ambiguity, and I start wondering whether the fairies are only real in a certain kind of way, even within the film, the world of the film, if you want to view it that way. Um, the film then gives us something downright supernatural, which is when the ghost of the dead brother appears, and this is really weird, is it? It appears to the journalist, and I, I suppose this makes the connection between the fairies and, you know, the spirits of spiritualism, because that hasn't really been made explicit so far, really. Um, weird that he would appear to this random journalist, you know, and not somebody in the family, but I guess the point is that now he believes he won't spoil the story of the fairies or some such. I don't. I mean, the film is a little, I think, is a little mixed in its messaging here. But we get a lovely scene back in London towards the end where Houdini is talking to the girls and he's talking to the press after his his successful show, and he's been he's been really he's always shown as being really kind to the to the kids, and again no cynicism in him and no nastiness which I really appreciate. But the press asks him outright in front of the girls, does he believe in the fairies? And he and they say, you know, you have a record of going against, uh, you know, debunking spiritualists and going against this sort of thing, and he says. I stand against fraud and I stand against exploitation and I stand against taking people for a ride when they're grieving and, and bad things like that. And he says, I see none of that here. He doesn't say that he believes in it. He just says that, well, whether this is real or not, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't think it's being done in bad faith. And he's allowed to remain, I think. I mean, I think this is up for up for debate a little bit, but I think the, the wording of this is very deliberate and very careful. And I think he is being allowed to remain skeptical because he's immediately after that his final words are masters of illusion never reveal their secrets now he's talking about himself and his 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 famous water tank trick but he is flanked by the two girls responsible for the cottingley fairies so the implication kind of is that they too are masters of illusion they too have fooled us and maybe that's okay we want to be fooled and then we get a scene with the two girls talking to each other in their bedroom about you know how the fairies will be gone when they grow up and Again, it sort of hints to me that, you know, they are, if they're real, they're only real in a certain kind of way. And, you know, nobody except the girls ever actually sees them. So that, you know, childhood is a particular time and a place. It's also a particular mental space. And, you know, things are very different and the world is very different to you. And you perceive things in a particular way and you might see things that a grown-up wouldn't. And I think that's kind of metaphorically true and it's sometimes literally true. And uh, again, the film is allowing itself a certain amount of, of ambiguity here. I wish it had a little more. But I, I will say it would be a hard heart that didn't unbend a little bit during the very final scene when we get a little bit more action from the fairies and the um, the film score used here is really, really powerful. And the, the father, uh, Francis's father, returns home. And it's, you know, especially if you spend a lot of time reading about the First World War, it's such a, such a dark subject and, and so much death and... You know, I I will not remain cynical about a film that gives us a little a little bit of um, you know heartfelt family getting back together in the context of such a terrible conflict. Except it's uh, in an uncredited cameo. It's none other than Mel Gibson. So yeah, wasn't expecting that. Whew, so we have a lot of themes here that we've dealt with, and um, I think this film was the better of the two to start with because it, like I said, it sticks to the the plot of what really happened a lot more closely than 
photographing fairies does, which we will talk about in our next episode. I'm going to do some final conclusions from Alex Owen. The Cottingley fairy photographs are a fragment of 1917 childhood, which Conan Doyle appropriated and invested with new meaning, and the intentions and dreams of the girls were subsumed in the process. Intended by Elsie Wright and Frances Griffith to stand as a personal record and confirmation of their relationship with the fairy world, the photographs were instead circulated by Conan Doyle for public consumption in order to support his own dearly held beliefs about spiritualism. So, next episode, hopefully, will be photographing fairies. So this is your warning. You have some time to go and track that one down and watch it. It's going to be interesting to talk about how the film takes a completely different angle on the same story it's much darker there is death and drug use and hallucinations and lots of other weird stuff it's it's categorically as i remember anyway not a kid's film as far as i recall so be interesting to talk about that other things that hopefully you'll be seeing over the next few weeks and months yes we will be having finally episode two of uh talking about hulk hogan's biography which is only very tenuously connected to what we usually talk about but it was popular and people have been asking about it so i suppose we'll have to do it there will be an episode about picnic at hanging rock so any of my usual contacts if you have thoughts about that one or good stuff that i should read by all means please send it on and as usual you can find us on twitter where we're at strange ireland or instagram where we are wide atlantic weird podcast until then as always stay safe and thanks for listening we are certain that satanism exists it's the practice of evil and following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body